If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yes. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. Before we get into it with returning champion, Noah Vashon, let's take care of a little business. What do you say, huh? Number one is Broadbeck Ironworks. Broadbeckironworks.com. They're makers of a 2x72 grinder that is very versatile, not only for knife makers, sculptors, woodworkers, uh, metal workers. It's great. And it and uses amazing uh, machinery. And then you can use it horizontally. You use it uh, vertically, and then they make incredible attachments that are very user-friendly, even if you don't have a Broadback Ironworks chassis. So what you can do is go to broadbackironworks.com and check out what they have and know this. If you want to get uh, $200 off, you put a Knife Talk 200 for any of their grinder packages. Uh, and if you want to get $100 off, they have Knife Talk 100. Gets you a discount off their sharpening system, surface belt, surface grinder, and leather sewing machines. I'm telling you, it's a great, it's a great, great machine. I have a couple of them, and they are, they have made my life much easier in this shop. I will tell you that. Uh, BroadbeckIronworks.com. They're great guys. Knife makers making knives, uh, making machines for knife makers, sculptors, woodworkers. If you need grinding done, they're the ones to get it done for you. Okay, Broadback Ironworks. Next is Total Boat. Total Boat, baby. Total Boat is the makers of manufacturer. Uh, my mistake. Total Boat is the makers of adhesives, paints, primers, polishing compounds for boaters, DIYers who understand that you need your projects to go smoothly. That's why they're constantly finding ways to make their original products easier to use more sustainable, less expensive. They understand that you need to make sure that not only your boat floats, but your projects work too. I actually use their two-part epoxy for uh, handle scales for my knives. I really like their two-part epoxy. It's a very intuitive uh, one pump, one pump, and it doesn't make, give you a, you know, a quart of it. It makes a per perfect amount for knife makers. And there are people using it for other things, like Jimmy Duresta. He's taking every dead animal he can find, and he's stuffing it with uh, two-part epoxy, and he's making these weird totems. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, except for he's doing it. They look weird and great, but he's the man. And if you go to TotalBoat.com, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off all of your TotalBoat products. It's good enough for Keith Decent, Derek from Alden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, all the Keiths, Jimmy DiResta. It's good enough for them. It's good enough for you. So get yourself some of that TotalBoat, baby. Okay? Next is Even Heat. Even Heat are the manufacturers of the finest heat treat ovens available. 
Get your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com and check out what they have. If you go to Knife Talk, they have a deal with a distributor that gives you free shipping and $75 off the United States. That's pretty good. Uh, heat treating ovens are important. If you're making knives, if you're making any kind of tool that needs to be hardened like hammers and axes if you are in the ceramics game you're going to need to glaze that pot somehow because you might as well use an even heat so go get yourself one of them even heats i've known this family for quite a long time and not only are they a great company but they are they stand by their products and you, when you call up if you have a question they will answer it whoever answers the phone is going to answer the, the question easily they're a super super great american company a great family and uh, I really appreciate the fact that they're standing behind that us. I've been dealing with them for quite a long time, and I love my even heats. I, I'm, I love my even heat ovens. Next is Maritime Knife Supply. Lawrence Lake over in Canada is hooking everybody up, ladies and gentlemen. You know what he did this past year? All his high-level performers, all the people who bought a pile from him, he sent them gift cards. You know why? Because he believes in his company and his customers. So if you go to MaritimeKnifeSupply.com, you can get all your knife-making needs, belts, abrasives, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat treat ovens, anvils, anything you need, brooches, uh, Rockwell chisels, uh, the fine book by Laren Thomas, Knife Engineering. He got it there. And if you go check it out at uh, Maritime Knife Supply, see, he's got all the TR Maker stuff. And if you say to yourself, hey, listen, I'm in Canada and he doesn't have this, Send him a message. He'll have it. Because I tell you one thing, I, when I talk about it on Knife Talk, anytime I'll mention anything, whether or not he has it or not, I get a message right back saying, I got that. I got that. The brooches, I got those. So he's got it. He's on board. And uh, he's a very valuable member of the knife-making community and the podcasting community. He supports a lot of sponsor, uh, podcasters. And if you're in the United States saying, what do I need to buy from Canada for? Well, it's just as fast. I don't know how he gets it across the border so fast. It's not my problem. But he's going to save you some money, and he's going to get you squared away. So Maritime Knife Supply, we appreciate you very much, okay? I just got a message from um, Trojan Horse Forge, and they had an amazing raffle for Jason Knight and his family. They, they did this great raffle, and every, all the listeners of this podcast and the Knife Talk and people who know TrojanHorseForge.com and know Jason Knight, they, they, they did a great raffle in, for, for, to fix stuff for Jason and after the fire and his family. That's because they're good guys. Trojan Horse Forge are the makers of the stable rail knife finishing vice, which is your your last, the last thing you're ever going to need for hand finishing, hand finishing your blades, hand finishing the handles. They have a plate. It's not just, see, some people just think that it's just for your handles. Well, it isn't. You bolt on this plate. It's got rubber everywhere. It supports your knife, and you can hand sand the blade. You can hand sand the blade and then take the plate off, flip it around, and you can use your handle. And then you have these clamps that move around, and then you can flip it all 70, uh, 375 degrees. It is the one, it's the last knife finishing vice you're going to need. And if you go to TrojanHorseForge.com and put in the promo code Full Blast, you're going to get free shipping in the United States. Okay, so that is definitely worth it. And uh, those guys are great and they're a great part of the community. They're in the heart of Texas making beautiful products. They do take uh, I think that you can buy stuff uh, with a payment plan. They have a payment plan options. So if you don't want to lump it out all the way, you can just, you know, pay as you go, I guess. I guess they got something to make it easy for you. And um, I support them because they support people in this community. They did a great thing for Jason Knight, who we're going to have on sooner rather than later. And uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate their support. So Trojan Horse Forge, get yourself one of them knife finishing vices, okay? And then we have, 
a new sponsor to the, oh no we have axe wax first axe wax all natural food safe wax for your axe it's great stuff it's great uh it's a great finishing uh wax for food safe stuff so if you're making culinary knives and you want to put some on your knife that's going to make sure that carbon steel stays nice without getting something icky for your customer get use some of that axe wax it's all natural food safe it's perfect for wood it's perfect for i use it for g10 i use it for wood i use it for carbon damascus anytime i have damascus which not very often but when i do i'll give it a slick uh, axe wax hit it with the heat gun make a nice thin thin layer and then I'll, I know that when I send it even if it's going to be in the mail for a long time I'm not worried about any rust or anything like that because the Axe Wax do its job and if you go to axewax.us put in promo code FULLBLAST10 you're going to get 10% off all of your Axe Wax uh, if you are in the UK you go to UK Knife Supplies he's taking Full Blast 10 if you're in the EU uh, Keith Colby over at KnifeMaterial.at is taking Full Blast 10. Gamaco is taking Full Blast 10. And my next sponsor, Nordic Edge, is taking Full Blast 10. Thank you, Axwax. And I want to welcome Ax, uh, Nordic Edge. Nordic Edge is a company down in Australia, good friends of ours. Uh, Sausage Man Forge, Jamie Bishop, introduced me to uh, Nordic Edge. They sent me one of their file guides. Their file guides are amazing, and they're going to sponsor the, prog the program. And I just want to say a couple nice words about Nordic Edge. Bjorn and the guys are really great down in Australia. Uh, they're the makers of Pro Tools for Knife Makers. These are the guys behind the original file guides with screw-on carbides, not glued-on carbides, screwed-on carbides. Uh, made from non-magnetic stainless steel. They won't rust. Uh, steel dust will not stick to it, giving the makers uh, giving the makers the edge since 2015. That's NordicEdge.com. Or if you're on Instagram, Nordic, at Nordic underscore Edge. Uh, Nordic Edge is based in Australia. You might have seen them on the Blade Show in Atlanta. Nordic Edge tools are available in some suppliers in the U.S. as well as their Full Blast podcast sponsor. And they are in the Maritime Knife Supply. So in Canada, they have uh, more uh, Maritime Knife Supplies is holding a lot of their stuff too. So if you visit nordicedge.com.au uh, and use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off all of your axe wax. They have knife making supplies, abrasives, grinders, tooling, kits, handle material, parts, hammers, and a pile of things that'll get you up and running from a seasoned veteran to a beginner. If you've, you listen to this podcast, you're Australia, you're just like, yo, man, I, I don't know from heat treating. I don't know about this stuff and that stuff. You can get yourself a kit from nordicedge.com.au, and they have heat-treated knives that are ground, finished. All you got to do is put, slap a handle on it, put an edge, and you can make some knives too. Get yourself involved. And um, they're great. And they also just did, uh, Nordic Edge just did the uh, Maker Give Back campaign for our friend, Kev Slattery, who was going through some spinal sur column surgery. He was a guest on this podcast, and uh, they gave a big uh, amount of money to based on the people who were buying stuff from Nordic Edge to help Kev on the road to recovery. So Nordic Edge, we appreciate you, and thank you so much for su supporting the show. And Jamie, you're the man. Sausage Van Forge, Bjorn, you guys are great, and I look forward to working with you in the future. Okay? All right? Okay? I am so glad my next guest is here. Noah Vashon is, I think, the most articulate man in knife making. That's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. He was on here before, and then he was supposed to be on last year with uh, Fingal. We had a good time over at Knife Talk. We did the uh, all-new, all-different Knife Talk, and we had problems. But I made sure that he is back. Noah Vashon's here, baby. How are you, Noah? I'm good. Thank you for having me back, man. It's good. It's nice to be back on here. I was really bummed about last time, but it's all good. Ugh, 
that this is the, the here's the the good and the bad with podcasting. The good and the bad is the good is um, it really some shows really resonate with a listener. Resi- mm-hmm. res- resonate with the listener. Listener. And the problem the and, and the cool thing is with computers and with the Zoom and with these programs, I can talk to people all over the world. The problem is it's not foolproof. And there mm-hmm. are things, there are little gremlins that go in that I can't understand and Craig can't understand and, and it makes it frustrating. But it's allowed me to talk to people from all over the world and you know, look, you're here. So I'm glad you're here. Yeah. How was your and I'm New good. Year's? Uh, New Year's was you know, New Year's doesn't mean to me now what it did when I was younger, of course. Right. But what was kind of cool about it was it was the first time that my daughter, who's she's not, well, she's going to be 10 this month, but she stayed up until midnight. So that's that was a big deal for her. And it was kind of fun that she got to, you know, that I got to be there and you know, do it with her. It was I mean, that's late for her. She usually goes to bed at like 830. Right. So she was pretty zonked. You know, by the time we did the countdown, we 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 had a little like dinner party with some some friends out here, and they have a daughter her age too. So you know, the kids are friends, and they were just you know up and wild. My son, who's four, just passed out at probably ten o'clock, which was still way past his bedtime. He didn't get what the hell was going on, but but yeah, it was good. It was good. It's hard. It's hard. The later you get, the older you get, the harder it's to stay up too. We had like, uh, we oh had, yeah, we had went to a party, and then we went to see the the ball drop in our town. Well, and surprisingly enough, we were we were both we were my wife and I were walking home, and we were both like, "I can't believe I'm still awake. This is like shocking." <laughs> yeah, because usually we're yeah. like out, we can't make it. At one point, we you know probably around nine thirty, my wife looked over at me, and I could she gave me this look. I could tell it was like, "Are we really gonna fucking do this? Are we really actually gonna stay up until midnight?" I mean, that's not oh yeah, you know, it's not that's not our normal schedule. And, and honestly, like New Year's doesn't doesn't mean anything to me anymore. You know. I remember, like when I was when when it was uh, when it turned from like you know the whole Y two K you know bullshit and it, it went from that. like nineteen ninety nine to two thousand. My friends and I were like, we're going to Times Square, and so we drove. It was like nine hours or something. <laughs> we drove. Oh we we got like a shitty motel in Jersey that took public transport, and and of course we didn't realize we, we were going to be underage because we were like a, you know we were like twenty, so we couldn't fucking drink, and you know you get corralled into like the the little section that you have to be in and you can't leave. And we're standing there from, from like 6 PM to midnight in the cold outside, just to see this ball drop, hoping something catastrophic would happen, you know? And it was, uh, it was a bit of a, a denouement. It wasn't, you know, the most exciting New Year's, but it was cool to see that, that whole scene. It's a wild scene in New York, right? I mean, you must've gone to that. I'll tell you a couple stories. Well, number one was, did you go for Y2K? Yeah. Oh I mean, you know, I was that... I was like, you know, 20 and I was thinking maybe something fucked up is going to happen. And, and if it is, maybe that's the place to be. You know, Well, we have to... to back this. I, I, you and I are of a certain age. Like yeah. I'm a little older than you. Yeah, but I mean, not, I mean, I'm 49. So yeah. we're not too far apart. Most of our listeners are what the fuck is Y2K? Right. Y2K <laughs> was this crazy theory that computers back in 1999 were not prepared to turn over to 2000 for some reason, right? I right. mean, that's basically the, the gist of it. Yeah. And what was going to happen was at the stroke of midnight, the computers would not do what they're supposed to do because they can't access the year 2000. And that's basically <laughs> it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's Which the is- the 
it shows like a, a total lack of computer understanding. It's like it's not wheels that have you know numbers not one through nine and and you know it's gonna like somehow break when it tries to turn to two thousand or whatever. Like it was kind of a ridiculous thought. I think I don't well, know. but I mean you think about the butterfly effect of how things happen. You know yeah. things being closed and stuff like that, and it does at the time. And you, we're not talking. I mean, you know, back in you know 1999 when you're talking about conspiracy theories, that was a big fear because I remember yeah, it was. We, my wife and I, lived on 14th Street that year, and we decided we had a we had a rooftop, uh, our building and a rooftop, and we decided to do so. We, you and I, were probably 30 blocks away from each other. Because, nice. because I was I was on a 14th Street on the roof, and we all decided well, we're going to fucking have the end of the world party right. on our roof. We're going to see the because at not Y2K <laughs> we're ready for problems to happen. Yeah, and we were on the down. roof, and we were all like watching out in the city and what's going to happen, and and nothing happened. But it was nothing like happened. for a long time there was a huge fear that like airplanes were going to drop out of the sky and banks weren't going to work and this just incredible like collapse because clocks couldn't go from 1999 to 2000. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I want it to be right in the middle of it if I could, yeah. you know? So but, not 1999, but I think not to, not for 2000, but it was either 97, 98. I, a friend of mine worked for this newspaper at Times Square and he said, uh, if you guys want, we're going to open the, we're going to have, uh, our office will be open and we can watch the, uh, the ball drop from the office, which was literally across the street. So we went up to this, apart, this, uh, newspaper that was closed, except for the, the people who worked there. And we could see, uh, we could see, uh, what's his, what's his face? Uh, the famous, uh, uh <sighs> Yeah, um, everyone's screaming at the phone. Dick Cabot? Uh, Dick, no, that, not Dick Cabot. No. Dick Clark. Dick Clark. Dick Clark. Yeah. So Dick Clark, we could see him on the stage, and we could watch. And what happened was, my friend Jamie, who's been on this podcast, my my college roommate, who's on the podcast, you know, way, way, way back. Right. He started. He started standing in one of the windows, and he started taking his clothes off, and and Times Square and dancing. He's a great dancer. He started taking his clothes off. And he started dancing in this window, and all, and, th- and this is like maybe twenty minutes before the ball drops. Okay. All the spotlights in the area starts panning up onto Jamie out of this window, <laughs> and all, at one point, all of Times Square is is watching Jamie gyrating without his shirt on, looking like he's going to take his clothes off. And but like the cool thing was was like even like the fucking lighting guys. We're like, we got to keep these people, you know, calm. <laughs> the streets yeah. were packed, and all of a sudden, the, all of 40, 42nd Street is like staring at my butt. My roommate Jamie just like, you know, g- gyrating in a window. It was hilarious. Amazing, amazing. But uh, I'm amazed <laughs> that you were able to. I, I think that the 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 big story now with going to uh, Grand Central, uh, we never did it. I never did it before because I, I always thought, well, where are you going to go to the bathroom? And that's the whole thing now. Is yep. the stories now are. When you get there and you get a good spot, you have to be there at four in the afternoon. And if you yeah, leave exactly. to go to the bathroom, you lose your spot. You lose your spot. Yeah, we were basically just pissing where we were standing. I'm not going to lie. There, I mean, it was so crowded and other people were doing it too. And we were probably the most sober out of that group because we hadn't been able to get any booze. Um, but everybody else is pretty rocked, you know. Uh, so people, it's it's a pretty, you know, 
it, it's it was vivid. it's a wild it scene down there. Yeah, yeah, it's a wild scene down there. One thing is is like the the big story that everyone's saying now is if you're gonna do it, you should get diapers. Like adult <laughs> like, diapers like... <laughs> are the move, and right. it's like that is a cr- that is a crazy admission. Like, get there four, wear your adult diapers, and you know, I mean, it's just that's it's dedication. I mean, yeah. it's madness, total madness. And and uh, I wish I had known you back then because I would have told you where to go back back in the uh, 80s, 70s, 80s, the 80s and the 90s, the place to get uh, dr- booze underage without even being carted were all the Korean delis. Mm. That was that was our spot where we would get like Bartles and James and like, you know. Yeah, that's of, like wine coolers, right? Bartles and James. Wine coolers, right, yeah, back right. before they had like, you easy, know, I guess, easy drinking. Right, easy drinking for, yeah, yeah. exactly. But uh, yeah, so, well, I mean, I love, I love these, I like these stories where there's this like, you know, you and I have, you know, only known each other for a little bit, but like having yeah. these like tiny, you know, 30 blocks is not very far. I mean, it's, yeah, it's I mean, barely that's a, a pretty mile close. Or, it's almost overlap. Yeah. 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 It's, so it's this yeah. crazy. I love these crazy overlap stories because it's just like, yeah, I remember, I totally remember Y2K. I was on you know, 14th and 1st and we, we, we heard the ball drop and there you were, you know, urinating into a Gatorade bottle and <laughs> Times Square. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, how has how was twenty twenty two for Vashon knives? Yeah, I was just kind of like, I mean, obviously, I'm thinking back over the last year and trying to make a few plans for the next year. I I try to write things down so that I can kind of remember what I had in mind at the beginning of every year and like whether I actually accomplished it. Basically, this year my goal was to try to sort of like tool up. You know, it was like, yeah. I wanted to, well, like we talked about it, you know, when we were talking last time about like, you know, going to classes, learning how to do new Damascus patterns and stuff like that. And so it was really like, an, it was a, a refocus on education for me this year. Um, sort of similar to the way that it was when I first started making knives. You know, like uh, the first three years, I was basically just, A, learn how to make a knife, you know, properly, and then try to somehow find a way to make some money doing it. And that that period was that was a success, and then I was able to sort of like continue that over the you know with the same type of knives more or less over the last few years. But then I kind of decided like I wanted to you know reinvest and and, and get back into learning, and so that's kind of what the last year was about. Unfortunately, what that means, I mean you know, you know what it's like. Learning costs money, right? I mean it takes right. time. It's it's more mistakes. It's it's uh, more time. You know in uh, you know, trying to learn new processes and trying things out and investing in tools. And so, like, if I look at the books this year, it would eh, not as good as last year, but but it's part of a long term plan. And I have to kind of keep that in mind. Right. So so sort of like try to keep the growth mindset, I guess you could say. It's called a positioning year. That's what it's called. Is that what they call it? Oh, that's okay. what Tony said to me one year. Okay. He says, Jeff, don't worry. This is a positioning year. I'm like, that's some like good that. bullshit right there. Like that's some that. good horseshit yeah. you're throwing at me, <laughs> I was, Tony. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, that. That's the positive spin I can put on having a less than This is than a positioning profitable. year. It's a positioning year. Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm, I was actually back to you know also crossing over and you t- taking tooling up. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, we were talk- you and I were probably in the DMs talking about how we – uh, cut uh, slots into tangs, and mm-hmm. I was—I think you said that you, we were, you and I were both using like drill presses, and, and I told you, I think I, I think I sent you a link to getting like uh, end mill bits 
to yeah, put in totally. your to put in your to put in your drill press. And I yes. think you and I, we were also talking about cross slides. There's the a, a vice that you can has a has a Y and an X axis, and and um, I was dealing with that. And yep. and speaking, of, I was thinking about you because this year before the end of the year, I had to you know spend a little money to get some tax write offs. Is I got a small milling machine. So, and I was thinking a small one, you know, like a yeah, really like a, like a like entry a bench, level, a bench mill or whatever. They right, call it. Like one a... for not for steel, one not for like heavy duty stuff. I'm not going to be making any fullers anytime soon. I'm not going to be doing what like, this isn't like what uh, Aaron Goff does, where he's you know he's like, oh, right. making knives, you know. But it was interesting because I was thinking about you because I had those same uh, end mills that I I got, you know, that I was suggesting for you get and stuff like that, and and, yeah. and um that idea of investing in your shop was such a huge, it's so important that I don't think people realize that how important it is. Yeah, totally. And you, you kind of learn that early on. You, you may put off getting like a, you know, your first kiln or something like that. And then you get it and you go, fuck, yeah. why didn't I get this two years ago? Right. You know? And then, so you kind of learn that lesson. Like if I'm really going to take this seriously, then I got to make sure I've got the right tools for the job. Otherwise it's almost not even worth delving into it until you're tooled up for it you know I, but what did I, you get what did you get the mill for out of curiosity I, it well specific because or? i'm this year so talking about like from next year to the last year what's interesting is i i uh we've decided that every year we're going to do a, a new style and different set and okay. not just and not just different handles but we're gonna we're, we're we i've been since the summer we've been talking about we started out doing this color lab series uh, that I did called Neptune Sunrise, Tony named. And then we, since the summer, we were working on what we were going to do for this new year. So what I've tried to do, and it's like, it's kind of hypocritical of me, but I really tried to push for fader knives. I've pushed the artist side of, of, of what I do to make this different than other companies. So when I right. say that, what I'm saying is, is I say it is I, my mentality is, if I were to do a show at a gallery, I'd want to make all new work. So this is yeah, like every right. year I'm doing this new stuff. So I'm just not like this, coming out I'm with not, a new album or a right, new exactly. uh, stand-up set or whatever. You're a musician, you know, right? So yeah. I'm trying to do some new stuff. So I started in the past couple of years. I was trying to do my um, color lab series, which is just basically it's laminated different color G10 and how I laminate it, and I've been making these framed. Uh, hidden tang handles. Okay, and nice. they've been coming out great. And I actually, the last since I, I made a few of them over the year, and then I've just over I guess starting November I started to kind of like make a pile of them. And then December and January I made a uh, you know made a, a number of them, and we've kind of decided on the size of the colors and the sizes and the shapes and with the names and everything like that. So I'm I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be, I wanted to invest in a, something to make eat the slots better. So my fit up between a hidden tang knife and the G10 slotted handle is better. So it's so basically you're doing like, frame, right? Is that, is that what you said? Right. Like it's a frame handle? Yeah. Right. It's, it's made my life so much easier than drilling holes. Yeah. Because if you're using, and this is, I know this is knife talk, but it's fine. The, uh, if I'm using 330 seconds, uh, steel and then my inner my inner liner that would be would where be is an eighth it still keeps me it still keeps me straight and then all i have to do instead of drilling anything out is i can just cut it on the wet saw and then right. it slides right in and it's just like 
it's so easy and it's and it looks great and it's just been a lot of fun but this the this past year for me the big the biggest tool that's been like monumental in terms of time and energy and health has been the tile saw hmm i can't okay. even believe it i can't so how, even believe oh, like you're doing never, g10 right it's you're like using that it, for g10 g10 yeah. g10 everything you know saw blades uh circular saw blades bandsaw blades it just destroys them kills them yeah but tile saw blades it they i've been using the same tile saw blade for the past you know just under a year Hmm. it and it leaves a perfect 90 degree cut every single time and there's no dust because there's water and it's like there's zero dust zero fumes and it's been this just awesome awesome find Oh, that's great. That's a good tip. So, so you're, I mean, you're basically cutting strips off of large sheets, I guess, right? Right, yeah. right. right. Yeah, and that's, right. there's, and you're doing a lot of that because you do, you're doing almost exclusively G10 these days. I mean, it seems like it anyway. I know you do well, some other but you, you seem to do mostly G10. You know, the f- interesting thing about wood and G10 is, is like, I like, I do like, I just actually today, I had a f- weird day getting getting my cryo situation squared away. But I do like this. I have this source for Hudson Valley uh, walnut, this figured walnut that looks really mm. great. And I stabilize it here, and it just, it's just great stuff. But at the same time, it's like it's hard for me. It's always been hard for me to separate myself out from other knife makers. You know, and, and I've always, yeah. I always felt, the, I felt that my best benefit, my best benefit is to, you know, use the same techniques I did making sculpture and, and mindset that I do with everything in making knives. And then you're, it's, it's just kind of changed the way I think about this company. However, I have, I still have customers saying to me, he's like, I don't really like the high colors. I want some wood. And I always say, I'm like, I'll make you whatever the fuck you want. If you're paying, well, right. Yeah. You know, I don't care. I don't care. You, don't, I don't, you don't, I'll make you whatever you want, you know? But, but it's, it's interesting it, to see that, that you're using G10 and obviously your color choices. I can see the tie-ins to the ways that you were painting the lures and some of the, I mean, I haven't seen everything that you've done, but I've seen some of the stuff that you've done and, and the, the bright colors, like there's definitely, I see that continuity. You're kind of using the G10 the way that you might've used paint, right? I mean, you're, you're, you have access to way more creative expression doing what you're doing with the G10 than you would by just choosing a piece of wood, right? Well, that's very interesting you say that because it's not necessarily, you're creative, but you're not like I can't. I don't have like Salem Straub has equipment to uh, you know like that he like could pantograph. Like, he could that. pantograph so he could make like yeah. curves and stuff like that. I'm not at that level. Um, I'm at the mercy of you know straight lines and color, but right. I'm also at the mercy of some colors don't do well in manufacturing, like white. I would love, my wife said to me last night, she says, when are you going to make, you know, white handles? And I'm like, as soon as they're easy to clean, Uh, as soon as they stay clean all the time, as soon as they're easy to work with where I'm not like constantly cleaning them to in order to make sure that they don't look dirty. But like, you know, so lighter colors, it's harder to buff with. So this year, actually, we're actually going to be doing something where it's the majority of the knife is black. But with the with this kind of like very, you know, very stark stripes, and it's very uh, it's kind of a, it's a slight departure from last year. But I'm really excited about it. 
What and, are you calling um, it again? I saw you tease well, it this on year. I this year I'm calling, calling it. I'll, t- I'll tell it's a good you. Good name. Well, I'm calling it Cosmic Drift. Yeah. And I'll it. tell you why, because Tony, my business partner, and I were huge comic book fans. Um, huge. And he and I actually got tours of DC Comics, and uh, we were like, we used to go to on our t- a day when we had time off, we would go to the comic book store down the rest down the street from our restaurant, and we would sit down in the office and read comic books. Cool. And um, one of my favorite comic book heroes of all time has always been the Silver Surfer. I don't know if yeah. you are a comic book guy at all. Yeah, no, I was never a huge comic book, uh, comic book guy, but like I, I remember I did buy a few comics at one point, and the Silver Surfer was one of the ones that I was into briefly. So yeah, yeah. Silver Surfer was such a cool comic because it because it wasn't like Superman, it wasn't like this hero. It mm-hmm. was this guy created. He was this terif- you know, terrible story of this guy who was basically created by this villain to be the herald of galactus who's gonna devour of worlds and he they basically made him completely silver and then they he get he got away all the kind of humanity that he you know he didn't have ears he didn't have genitals and he was just like you know he was all he all he needed was his you know his skin was silver so it could withstand the vacuum of space and then he had this surfboard that he would soar through the galaxy just like looking for worlds for Galactus to devour. And it was just very interesting. But I always liked him because there was this very, he was just, he was looking, he was watching the the universe go by and he could see things. And I started to do last year, I did a couple knives with this thing that I really thought looked like the rings of Saturn. And I was like trying to kind of come up with something. And then we just, it was like this, it was, the idea is that it looks like something you'd see if you were just kind of drifting past, you know. Mm. So, Cosmic Drift is going to be this year's Color Lab series, and right you know, on. And we're going to do some other thing. We're going to do some um, one-offs. We're going to do this thing we're calling the Wild Card, where I just knock some things off and put them on the website in different colors and stuff like that. It's been, it's been fun. It's been fun. You got to yeah. You got to find that balance between like your standard issue line and then one-offs that you know give you a chance to just fuck around and try something new and that's yeah that's well but you know that too i mean you don't do you don't do customs anymore right you're all newsletter i mean i i never fully closed my books and i still take on the odd like interesting project and then i also will take on projects from people who i've done work for in the past you know like if you're a client you bought a couple knives from me and you're like can you make me this something special i'm not gonna be like sorry books closed you know you got to take care of people and so that's sort of what the the custom book looks like for me these days is it's like, yeah, interesting projects that I want to take on. Um, and then I try to, yeah, the newsletter thing, if I could just survive entirely on make whatever the hell you want and put it up for sale and it goes, that would be my dream. But right. it's never that, you know, consistent and you end up having to kind of like diversify and, 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 you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a big, uh, open-ended question you know for me every month is like what am i what am i going to focus on this month and it's usually well whatever i think is going to make me the most money this month because it's always down you know it comes down to the bottom the bottom line at the end of the at the end of the day but i try to keep as many creative things going as i can i remember when i was in this fabrication shop and talking to the owner a lot and he was referring to you know where i'm going to bet on a job here and a bet on a job there 
And it just always seemed to, in the, in the two metal shops I was at, you know, they're bidding on jobs. Stuff, stuff doesn't just show up, you know. It's, right. And it's not like, you know, when you're a contractor, you make relationships and you, you – but at the same time, you're also thinking about your overhead and you're, think, you're taking jobs on to – and he used to say all the time, he's like, I, I want to run this job through the shop you know, a railing or something like that. Maybe not the, you know, the most artistic thing, but it would be like, you know, it would be payroll for a month, you know, you know, so we were actually, we got a guy who saw some of my old work and wanted to make a set and it's a big set. And it's like, is it going to be a pain? Is it going to be exactly what I want to make? No. But I was talking to uh, Allison who works in the office and I said, listen, let's get this job. I want to run this through the shop. And it was like, it keeps my guys busy. It keeps me busy. It keeps me kind of like focused and occupied, and and I like it. And I I don't I don't have a problem with the idea of, you know, doing jobs that might not be you know the great you know it's like you can be the greatest chef in the world, but you don't have to eat the highest level all the time. I mean, sometimes a no. peanut butter and jelly makes it happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's exactly. that's it's a very it's a very uh, it's a very interesting kind of dynamic. And one thing I talk about on Knife Talk, and I don't know if you heard it or not, but I always say to the guys that a lot of times we're answering questions as knife makers as opposed to business people or metal workers. And right. it's like we're we're like we're we're bouncing off the ideas based off of what other knife makers say. And it's like this it's almost it's it's almost too it's like it's, it's a little too structured almost, you know? Well, the business side of it is so separate from the from the creative side. Right, it's like that. Everyone's everyone knows that, but um, but it's uh, so I find it anyway. I find it hard to have to constantly kind of remind myself that even though I'm doing this just because I want to do it, I still have to make sure I pull in enough money every month. And and sometimes, like you said, that means just taking a project and running it through the shop, even if it's not going to be like the one that get you know that you get all your jollies from. Um, but you, you know, you got to keep the lights on. So, yeah. And actually that, that kind of reminds me of, you know, talking about, um, this new project, there were a lot of options that I could have done that would be, I would wanted to think about this new set, uh, uh, cosmic drift. I really wanted to, I had to think about not only how it looks, but like, what's the feasibility of making something on a production level? You know, and we originally we were going to use canvas micarta and I found that it was too hard to work with. I found that it was too hard to source in in bulk. And that was one of the reasons why I had to make a design decision to not use canvas micarta because I felt like it was going to be too difficult if I had to do like, you know, Neptune Sunrise last year, we did 400 knives. Over 400 wow. knives. So, wow. like, I'm going to, if I got a source material for 400 knives, it can't be that unique. No. Right. Yeah. See, that's interesting. That's, that's like, to me, that's like a serious commitment to say, here's the model of the year. And, you know, anyone who wants one, I will make them one. Doesn't matter how sick of it I get. You know, like, to me, that's like, I'll, I'll do batches where I'll be like, okay, I'll make 30 like this. And to me, it's like, okay, that's enough. And, and trust me, by the end, I'm, Happy to not have to make any more of them, but um, yeah, that's a big that's like a big commitment. Which means, of course, you have to plan that. You got to make sure you got all of those, you know, all of your processes figured out and all right. of your you know material sourced. And yeah, right. Well, what's interesting is is because you know, I've worked in metal shops before where I was, and there were weeks where I was on a drill press, hmm. weeks, day in day out on a drill press, and I didn't mind it. And I, and I felt like I felt like 
the, the 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 ability to kind of like get yourself as organized as possible, everything as accurate as possible, and to just to kind of it was about to me it was more about the system in place to get you to the end as opposed to you know every so often thinking this is so boring. You know, I I, right. I liked I liked sometimes monotony is okay. Let me ask you, do you, maybe you feel this way too, but it kind of I was thinking about this recently. It's sometimes it's kind of like I have to be two people. I, I'm the boss of the shop and I'm also the employee of the shop. And I want to make sure that when I'm the boss, I'm just thinking about boss stuff. And when I'm the employee, I'm just thinking about employee stuff. And so it's like, I'll make the list for the employee, you know, all the, all the shit he's got to do that day. And I'll do all the thinking, you know, the planning, the long-term considerations. And then I hand the list off to the employee, which also happens to be me. And at that point, I stop thinking about it. I don't question any of it. It's not like I, I'm not wearing the boss hat anymore. I'm just the guy who has to go into the shop and get his hands dirty and, right. and execute. And I'm so much happier when I keep those two sort of aspects separated, almost as though they were like two completely different people. Does huh. that resonate with you at all? I like understand. I understand what you're saying. I um Because I have... You know, now I have guys. I got uh, David, who's well, in the shop true. with me, and then I also have someone in the back office who does all the customer service and the billing and the, and everything like that. I have to make sure that there's work, and right. it it's I do like the I've gotten to the point before I had anybody that I was organized enough that I understood what I needed to do, and a lot of it came from the fact that when I I the before I started making knives I was working for a contractor and I and he laid me off because he didn't and I'm not mad about it but he didn't realize what he he didn't realize that what it took to have someone on the books mm, he thought he right. did and then all of a sudden he started paying you know on employee employee benefits and all this stuff and it was like it was more headache for him than he had realized he was used to paying people off the books and frankly that's just the way it was so when I started working for myself, it was because I was laid off. I was laid off and I didn't want to, you know, it was an opportunity. I didn't want to go back to my other job, which I could have easily, a heartbeat. But I felt like I just didn't want my tail between my legs coming back begging for my job. Hmm. And uh, my wife said, this is a great opportunity because we do need help with our daughter. You know, she was very young at the time. And it gave me the opportunity to kind of make sculpture, do jobs on the side like I used to. And I had to be, I, at that point, in order for my wife not to think I was crazy or lazy or an asshole or dumb, I had to be very organized. And I, and I, I took it so seriously from the beginning because I just wanted her to know how de de dedicated I was to doing this. So, right. like, I wouldn't get, I'd get a call. I, there were no getting calls from a friend, let's go to the bar at 3. You know, I was like, I was very dedicated from the beginning and I felt like that discipline really from an early stage. And I, same thing when I, back in 1996, when I had my own shop, I, I really had to make sure that people think, didn't think that I was just fooling around. Yeah. So That's it's a stigma hard. That you have to overcome almost, right? It is a stigma. And, and I think that once you become, you know, it's like anything else. I mean, once you just realize that this is a, this is a job, whether you like it or not. And you should take it as seriously as if you were working for someone else. I think that you become more used to it. Now, for me now, for me now, my job is to make sure I'm ahead of David. So, like, I have work for him so he's not standing around. 
because right. the I hated when I was working for someone and all of a sudden I finished everything I'd done and then I said, well, what should I do? And they would say, well, why don't you go sweep up? I fucking hated that. Sure. So I have to make sure that I'm on the ball in order to make sure that he's has work to do for weeks on end, you know. So I find it. Stim- I be honest with you, I never thought I'd say this, but I find it intellectually stimulating. To, like to, to be a boss, you mean? No, I don't really think of myself as a boss. Well, I'm, but it's know. more along the lines of to how do we get to the end stage of this project? And the crazy thing is, so Tony, my business partner, says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Well, this is last year. He said, we're going to make a seven-piece set, and we're going to launch a new model, a new model, same color lab handle, new model every two months, a uh, month and a half. Right. So I had to be on the ball in terms of getting everything out and having, you know, selling sets and doing everything else. And and I never missed a deadline. The the All I have left to do is, and this is because, you know, my friends at New Jersey Steel Baron were late on me, is I only have four more, five, I have five more uh, Neptune Sunrise from last year to go out, and then that's it. And and I, I hit every, Oof, I hit you, every deadline on the money, on the money. And it was really, really, that was a proud moment to not get overwhelmed and things get in your way. And how do you organize yourself so these things don't happen? And it was very, very uh, satisfying. Uh, experience and planning, right? I mean, that's what saved you there, probably. <sighs> I tell you, because, I, I, well, two things. One, my, one side of my family is not as, I got to be careful how I say this, is, wasn't as organized as the other side. And I had to really kind of figure out how I wanted to do this, but also I wanted to be taken seriously by my wife. You know, yep. I didn't want her to think, oh, well, every, every, you know, he comes up with these cockamamie ideas every six months and now I have to like, you know, negotiate with him to get a job. You know, I wanted her to realize how serious I was about this. Yeah, my, my intro to knife making was very similar to, to what you describe in terms of feeling like I needed to prove to people this isn't right. just going to be another one of those you know, ideas that I have that I, for whatever reason, just can't seem to follow through on. You know, I, I had to make it different somehow. That's the hardest part is, yeah. you know, most knife makers, especially guys who are just learning, they say to me, and I talk to guys on the phone, I talk to guys on the podcast, they say the difference is going full-time and part-time. Well, it's like there's no other job where you say that. You know, like you either work for yourself or you don't work for yourself. And it's like, at what level do you do that? Now, I've talked to Mike Quisenberry, Master Bladesmith, and he yeah. says, it's a hobby for me because he's got a job. He's an engineer. He, runs, he right. drives trains. Right. And he likes it because he can do whatever the fuck he wants. He's at the top of his game, at the top of the game. He's on the short list of the best knife makers in the world. And it's like, it's just he can do the fun stuff, and he doesn't really feel like he needs to be a professional knife maker. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, for his job. Yeah, I mean... So that's and, and you know what? If he was a full-time knife maker and he was depending on the work coming out of his shop to feed his family, then the work that we would see him make would probably be different. I mean, I'm sure it would still be amazing because he's like a super talented guy, but he wouldn't have the luxury maybe of spending as long as he does on each project, um, you know, because, well, financial pressures to, you know, get enough projects completed in the month, let's say, right? it's i i find the whole thing interesting and i go always go back to josh smith of montana knife company because i remember talking to him before he started montana knife company he and i had long conversations and he was i had him on the podcast before and we kind of told about his origins and now it's the biggest knife making company the biggest fastest growing knife making company in the united states by a mile i mean 
And I don't think that, I mean, there's a lot of factors at play, but I think that I find it to be fascinating considering he's a master bladesmith and he probably wouldn't be doing these knives otherwise. I, but he's yeah. able to kind of give a product to customers who maybe don't want to spend a thousand dollars on a knife, but they're getting a piece of what his, you know, knife making genius in their homes. Right. Yeah, yeah, that that's. I mean, and, and Jason Knight's kind of got a similar thing going on with yeah. his uh, Kickstarter thing, and and it's really cool because yeah, you, you know, not everybody can afford work from these guys, right. but you might really like to just have something that they designed or they contributed to um, to support them, or just you know to have like you said, like a piece of that that you couldn't have otherwise. Um, yeah, but Josh is cool. fa- Josh is fascinating. Montana Knife Company is more fascinating than any other knife making company right now that's from custom that started out from custom knife makers josh smith if you don't know this josh smith was a master bladesmith the youngest master bladesmith still to this date he was a forge and fire competitor he uh he was on with Mareko. Mareko beat him he they became friends he was part of this custom knife world and he right. was trained under you know mike quisenberry and and bob kramer all these guys and Montana Knife Company is fascinating because he's hit upon a, a section of society that's different than your section of society, your customers and mine. Yeah. He's got yeah, this he, like yeah. cross-training, hunting, MMA, outdoors, weightlifting, CrossFit, kind of, you know, Instagram, popular, you know, hunting and Joe Rogan thing that a yeah. lot of us wouldn't, wouldn't we, I don't think we could tap into. Well, he's, yeah, his marketing is great. And clearly he's found a little segment that's just ripe, you know, for his product basically. And, and, uh, he's doing a fantastic job catering to that. It's like a group of people who, yeah, honestly, I don't know if I've ever even met one, you know, like the, the, the sort of fitness crossed with, with hunting. Like that's a very kind of niche. It seems to me it must be niche, but it's obviously big enough to support, you know, quite a big industry it seems as though it's like i mean it's in the joe rogan sphere where he started doing a lot of hunting and then you have to be fit in order to to be a hunter and the hunting fits is the fitness and then the meat and the meat eating is the nutrition and then you have this kind of like cyclical like i know some guys who are like nutrition guys and then all of a sudden you know they're in new jersey with like compound bows and camouflage paint on their face and they're like at their montana knife company sitting on the you know the garden state parkway (laughs) trying to shoot at a buck you know it's it's i find it to be fascinating but in terms of business i mean it is kind of pretty it's pretty neat you know yeah oh yeah it's inspiring to see that yeah so what do you got to watch all these guys because there's something to learn from them well, you know, one of the things is, is like, I mean, for him, I mean, a lot of it's because he, his business partner has a marketing degree and right. his fit, his business partner, Brandon was really a huge part of like the explosion. But then there was one guy, this name, this guy named Bo Sandoval, I believe that he gave it to, you know, Joe, he gave one of the knives to Joe Rogan. And then uh-huh. Joe Rogan started talking about it and he wears the Montana knife company hats and the shirts and he's, you know, all of a sudden now... Uh, Josh is involved with all he's got he's on these Navy SEAL podcasts and he's he's kind of he's been you know black rifle coffee he's like sided up with all these like like like-minded people and it's like they it's it's crazy it's crazy and now to the point where he has these 
these newsletters that get, I got one of his knives in early days. I, funny enough, I got one of his knives where the boxes were misprinted. I, 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 I busted his balls about the, the boxes were misprinted. I, I think it's like going to be like a, you know, a special, you know, money maker. That's, yeah. That's going to be collectible at some collectible, point. Hold on right. to that. Keep it in mint condition. And, and he, he, I mean, the the growth at the selling out and you know selling you know seven hundred thousand knives in two minutes is just out of control, and yeah. the infrastructure they had to build in order to kind of meet the dead these these demands it's been it's actually been awesome watching the growth. I mean, in the past he started it really started it in the beginning of the pandemic, and it's been like this. It's been awesome. It's been awesome. It's been awesome to see, and and um, you know, it's it's another avenue of what we can possibly do if we wanted to yeah definitely maybe somewhere somewhere down the road for me years i don't down the road. i mean <laughs> i mean it's a, it's only you know yeah some years down the road and it's also the desire and it's there's a lot of luck involved you know I for mean, sure i don't think the food industry has a podcasting empire like you know joe rogan does so like no you know i mean Sorry, food industry, but I mean, it's like, they're, you know, I mean, David Chang ain't slinging knives. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way it is. No, no, that's right. So yeah. I was thinking about you today and I wanted to ask you some question, knife making questions, because yeah. one of the things that we decided to do with this new style of knife is we decided to change steels this year. Right. I've been, I've been, with, I've been like, I've been loving 440C for years just because the heat treatment for 440C stainless has been solid like i've never once had a problem and it's been like i'm the kind of guy that i find something i like and i stick with it but you know it's hard it's really hard it's super duper hard to grind it's a bitch to hand sand it's like it's more expensive than aebl and then i started to get back into aebl and throughout the year i was every so often i would heat treat a knife out of aebl and uh i had great response and i tell you what if just for the if you get the Laren, Dr. Laren Thomas book, Knife Engineering, all the recipes for all the, the knife steels are in there, and the and the recipes oh, yeah. are on the money. I don't know yep. if you use his book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I was using AEBL before I got his book, but then after I got his book, you know, I kind of like I, – I think what I did is I, I just did a couple test coupons using his recipe. And, I mean, I don't have a Rockwell hardness tester, so I do like all of the – you know, I sniff it and I lick it and I chew on it. You right. know, like all yeah, 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 yeah. crude testing methods that we do when we don't have the machine. But but I, I I mean the test results were basically the same as the recipe that I'd been sort of doing before and I figured, you know, it's Laren Thomas approved, man. You know, you gotta well, So I so I'm yeah, I'm following his recommendations basically exactly for my EBL. What the my when I was when I first got a EBL my Rockwell tester was me flexing it and making sure it flexes back. Like (laughs) to me for a culinary knife, you know, it has to be hard enough that it, it holds, you know, it flexes back. It doesn't. (laughs) And what was happening was I wasn't the, I was getting it to the critical temperature that was prescribed, but the austenite wasn't converting over to martensite enough. And I was getting a knife that was bending, not flexing. And then I was so terrified that I was like, I don't want to use this anymore. And then I had gotten a doer, uh, a liquid nitrogen doer from Rick Dunkerley years ago. And I filled it up and I started fooling around with cryo. And I actually even used just a freezer. Like I, I, I was talking to Fingal and Fingal says, it worse comes to worse, he treats your knife and then stick it in the freezer overnight. 
And I was shocked at the difference between that, you know, just the, I guess, the, that cold temperature takes the uh, retained austenite and converts to martensite. Right. So I got... And I don't know if it's as effective as the liquid nitrogen, but it's it's definitely more effective than not doing it at all. I was getting 61 Rockwell yeah. with the freezer. Oh, well, there you go. You know, yeah. and it's like, you don't even need 61 Rockwell for a culinary knife. I mean, it's not really. slightly... Not really. So I went and got cryo today. And it was such a pain in the ass. I, I had to drive up to this welding supply store. And as soon as I walked in with the cryo, uh, the tour, the guy says, we don't have liquid nitrogen. I said, what happened? He goes, well, we've been bought, so you got to go to this other town. So I had to go all the way, completely other town. I called ahead. I said, you have liquid nitrogen. Can I fill this door? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I show up, to the, I show up there now. And then the guy says, oh, you got to come back in half an hour. The guy who does the liquid nitrogen isn't here. And then I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And they're like, yeah, don't. I said, well, can I leave the door here? And they go, no, you got to take it with you. So I went and I went to the lumber yard and I went back and filled it up and stuff like that. What's it's always going, a pain in the ass. It was such, it was the whole day. Yeah. It was the whole day. Yeah. I And then I took, and they said, well, you know, I got a couple hours before Noah shows up. I'm going to make a couple extra errands and I don't have to take a shower tonight. That's for sure. I didn't, I didn't do anything. That <laughs> you was didn't, like, you didn't make any dust. I didn't make any dust. So I don't have to take I take a shower in the morning after I work out and that's it. And usually I take two when I get home, but now I don't have to take a shower. That's, that's the good part. But <laughs> what's, so tell me. Tell me when you use cryo, when you use cryo after heat treatment. So if you're listening to the podcast, you know what the fuck we're talking about. You, you're, when you're hardening a knife, you're getting to the critical temperature of the steel. And the critical temperature of the steel is based on the alloy that it is. The critical temperature where the iron carbides go into solution, creating austenite. And then as it cools, whether, whether between plates or with air or, or in oil, you're converting the martens, the austenite into martensite, so a solution into crystal structure. That's what makes a knife hard or a hammer hard or axe hard. When are you putting in the knife steel after it's hardened in the cryo? So I'm doing it, well, right after quench. So I'll quench probably as you do between aluminum plates, right? And then I'll let it cool to room temperature from there. And then as soon as it's room temperature... It's going into the cryo. For how long? So I think what Laren says about AEBL, and I think it's different depending on what alloy you're using, is it doesn't really need a soak. It just has to basically uh, equalize. You know, like you basically have to get it to the temperature of of your liquid nitrogen, which okay. I, I, usually what I'll do is I'll watch the, the steam, you know, because basically you, you put the room temperature knife into liquid nitrogen. It's like you put red hot steel into room temperature water, basically, right? right? It's like it starts to boil violently, and then eventually it just kind of settles down, and there's no more, um, you know, vapor coming out of your doer, and it, everything's nice and chill. Then I'll usually just say, okay, another five minutes, and then I'll pull it out. So it, it usually ends up being within 15 minutes of – putting the blades into the liquid nitrogen, they're back out again. Perfect. So that's, I mean, does... that's what I understood from like what Laren, I think was saying, I think it was him was saying about specifically AEBL. Yeah. That's so, and I wonder because I was talking to, I was, I guess I was talking to Fingal and he said, do the cryo immediately after you heat treat, otherwise it's not worth it. There are other knife makers, master bladesmiths who cryo in between temper cycles. Have you heard of that? I have. I, I, honestly, I, I, I don't understand it because I thought that it had to be more or less like a linear progression. 
you know, like from critical right. down to, you know, under, you know, past the nose or whatever, so that you get the hardness and then, you know, to room temperature and then continuing. Cause essentially the cryo is an extension of the quench, right? At least that's how I understand it. So, you know, you're taking I, yeah, it from really it hot, sense. you're quenching it. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. And then you're continuing to to cool that steel. So I, yeah, I've never done it between... So um, it's... All the retained austenite is converting. It's that's it's yeah that makes a lot of sense. It's it's a continuation of the iron carbides in solution transforming over into crystal. Yeah, that, that's how I understand it anyway. But I mean, it's weird because there's like there's the science and then there's the sort of like mysticism, and then everyone's a little bit superstitious too because things are happening that we can't see. Right? right. And so so, you you know, you, you have a success one way and you kind of don't want to question it. So you're like, well, this is my method and I can't tell you why, but this and it works, you know. So it could be that, you know, before you had guys like, you know, Laren releasing all this incredible in-depth information that that people were trying different things with liquid nitrogen. And maybe maybe there is some benefit to using it, you know, halfway between your um, tempering cycle. I, I really couldn't tell you. I don't know. It's, but, yeah. it's all fascinating to me, but the only thing that's more fast, not fascinating, but how long does your cryo last in your doer? Yeah, that part you sucks. You think about that? It's, it's not long. I, I mean, I think if I had a bigger doer, it would last longer. Mine is just like a, it's a 10, I think it's a 10. 10 liter? liter? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it seems to last a bit longer in the winter. And I remember I told this to somebody and they're like, you're out of your mind. It's like negative 300 degrees Fahrenheit. You think it gives a shit whether the, you know, outside temperature is, you know, 20 below or 20 above zero. It's such a tiny range. It's not going to affect, you know, how long, but I swear it does last a little longer in the winter because I keep it outside. Um, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's a small change. It's a small difference if, if there is a difference, but um, it'll last if I'm not using it a ton, you know, which seems to usually be the case because I buy it when I need it and then I don't need it anymore and it just sits there because I usually heat treat in fairly large batches. But it seems to last like a couple of months. When I, I was asking the guys, cause last time I had it and I was pissed off that I had to buy, I pissed off how expensive it was. Like, so yeah. at 20 liters, 20 liters of liquid nitrogen was $215. Plus what? I had to go get the fucking, yeah, it was $215. And, wow. to, and you know what's, you know, what's even crazier, but it's 20 liters. What's crazier yeah. is yeah. when I called ahead because I got skunked the first place I went to, the guy says, are you planning on using it for food? Because we won't uh, fill it. We won't fill it if it's, if you're going to use it for food. 
Because it's not food safe. It's not like food grade. Well, that's what's going on with these fucking cooks now. They're all making, you know, they're getting. They make an ice cream and. They're making. They're do. They they think that they're playing. They're playing with this liquid nitrogen. So when I call the guy, because I mean, liquid nitrogen, you're not, you know, normal dudes in their garages aren't buying it. You know, it's not really. When I called up and say, "Hey, you have liquid nitrogen. Can I fill up my doer?" That's not. They're like, do you have the right container? We're not giving this fucking to you in a in a thermos. Right, you can't show you up know, with a pint glass and yeah, say, "Give me a yeah. pint of." And they're like, you know, obviously, I didn't say the right words in order for me to, to for them to say, you know, they were me like, "Are you coming from a restaurant?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not coming from a restaurant." He's like, "Well, what do you do?" And he asked me a million questions. Like, I'm huh. a knife maker. I got to cry all this. I'm going to come in here with a with a vest that says my the logo of my company on. It. I'm going to pay you the credit card of my company and my logo on it. Right. You know, like I'm not doing for with food, and it, that's become a real problem. So when I was talking to him about it, when he filled it up, I said, "Well, what do you? How long do you think it should last in the doer? Because you know, two hundred dollars, you're you're like you better make it fucking last. Like I'm yeah. planning on, I'm planning on doing a pile of heat treatment, and then I got I have steel coming in, and I'm planning on heat treating and cryoing a lot of knives because I, that's the other thing is I don't I don't need to have it on hand." You know, I just no. You just you'll use it when you do your big heat treat batch, right? Right. And then yeah. he had said that the key is is you don't open it up. Like if you keep it, if your doer, if your doer is well insulated, and you don't keep the fucker open all the time, you're it's going to last for for a long time. And what they said sure. was they said it it can last up to 102 days. A 20 liter, a 20 liter uh, doer of liquid nitrogen, which is great. That makes sense. I mean, that's like a little over three months. Yeah, that makes sense. It ain't lasting that much. I said to him, I no. said to him, like, I asked him because I said, I think the last time I had it, uh, maybe I had a little bit left in there after six weeks. And he goes, well, just keep it closed. I'm like, well, thanks. Thanks for yeah. the tip. So don't use it. It'll last longer yeah. if you don't use it. Yeah, don't use it. Just keep it in the thing. You'll have it forever. You pay $200. Yeah. You can have yeah. it forever. Thanks. Just don't use it. Or at least 100 days. <laughs> but, I mean, this is also yeah. part of that whole idea of, how do we? Because I know a lot of guys use uh, liquid nitrogen. I know that Fingal, because he, because for his business, for the for Gabine, they have liquid nitrogen. They're using it, so it's like he has an added benefit. I know a lot of other knife makers who use liquid nitrogen, and I only decided to use it if I thought, okay, I want to get my knives hardened. I don't want to stick them in the freezer overnight. I want to do it like pro pro. And I'm just going to, I have to make sure that I'm being as efficient as I can with the cryo. And it became an extra part of this business, like the performance end and not using light colored G10. And I'm getting a better, you're getting a better rate with the AEBL than you are with the 440C. And I'm getting the same, I'm getting just as good performance. Just as good. Oh, that's good. And you're saving a bit of money, and and I mean it's a newer steel, and you know the the money I'm saving is on labor, because okay. um, I'm I'm able to grind the knives faster. I might not be able to hand sand the knives faster, but I'm getting a little bit more out of. And now I'm not doing file work because these aren't full tang knives, so we're, there's a little bit of labor I'm saving here and there. But it's interesting because. As a knife maker, and here what I wanted to talk to you about is I think that there's a very there's a similarity between the two of us in the sense that our previous jobs and interests have influenced how we make knives today. You know, I, I love the fact that you used to make uh, guitars, and right. I see I see I don't know if you consider yourself a luthier. I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah. 
Certainly yeah. not anymore. Certainly not anymore. But I can see, after talking to you uh, about guitar building, I can see how that level of detail translates into your work now. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know what? Give me two minutes. I'm going to have to step away from the mic for a second. And Go then ahead. Gonna, then I'm going to speak to that. Go ahead. He's got to go to the bathroom. I understand. Huh. Don't, don't worry about it. I, I can totally understand. Listen, I've been drinking coffee all day. I completely understand. Go ahead. Do we Guys, pause it or we go, just let No, it just don't do anything. Just walk away. Just go take a leave. Don't worry, no. Don't worry, guys. Guys, listen. No is the man. I would highly suggest you listen to the first episode. Uh, I did a couple episodes with Noah. And what, what the interesting part was we were talking about his history. And his history revolves around the fact that he was a guitar player and then he ended up making guitars. Uh, I think I was thinking today about all the different uh, people I know who have made guitars. Uh, I know Jimmy DeRest has made guitars. Uh, Keith Decent has made these cool electric guitars. Um, Nick Key over at Shop Sounds, he makes guitars. And I'm, I'm interested in the transition between making a guitar and making a knife. Because there is a lot of similarities. And the connection that Noah and I have is, you know, for a lot of time for the sculpture that I was making was highly colored wood, carved wood, and, and, and steel. The connection between the, the contrast between the steel and the colored wood is a direct connection between the knives I'm making now where it's, you know, whether a, a G10 handle, a colorful handle, and the steel. And I would think that the same thing would be, and it's too bad he's not, too bad he's taking a leak right now. I got this dick in his hand. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm going to have to reserve up this question to him. I'm convinced that there is a connection between uh, how he makes knives and how he did make uh, guitars. Um, he's back. Okay. There you are. Yes, now there you have my full attention. I was trying to, I was trying to, I was talking about, I was making the, I was making the connection that, um, one of the connections that you and I have is because I think that there is a very strong connection between a lot of the sculpture that I did, these giant lures with steel and painted wood, and you can almost see this direct translation to the steel, the contrast between steel and you know, the colored wood. And it's right. almost the same with you because you do, you know, the, 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 the guitars used to make is this contrast between this carefully sculpted wood and, and fabricated wood with the steel and the connection between the two. I wonder if you see connection with how you make knives, with how you made guitars. Yeah, I think, I mean, the two products are very different, right? Um, but they kind of have one thing in common is that they're not what they they're not like it's not a knife until you sharpen it and like you know it's like a knife shaped object you could say right and a guitar is the same it's not a guitar until you string it up for the first time until then it's just a thing that looks like a guitar and there's this interesting thing that happens when it goes from being something that you're just looking at to something that you're actually using and doing right. something with is the aesthetics suddenly just diminish drastically in importance right um, so it's this thing where you're just like looking at it, looking at it. It's got to be perfect. It's got to look right. It's got to look right. And then, you know, with the guitar, you put the strings on it and, and you're like, oh, but it sounds beautiful. So who gives a shit what it looks like? I mean, not not completely to that you know extent, but suddenly its utility becomes as at least as important as as the aesthetics. Um, and so I kind of get a similar kick every time I finish a knife and I do, and it does remind me of that, like, cause that was the first time that I think I ever felt that was the first guitar that I made that transformation from 
a thing that just looks like what it's going to become to, you know, becoming that thing. Um, but in terms of like the, the, the crossover, it's, it's kind of sad. I have all these like very specific tools that I bought when I was making guitars and almost none of them have any application in knife making aside from like my calipers, you know, um, or a couple of like little sanding blocks or something like that. But it, you know, guitar making has its own very specific tool set and, um, but the temperament's the same, like the, the temperament yeah. of like, there's, there's different stages that you can do and can't do. Oh yeah. In terms of mindset, I think that, you know, knives and guitars are just as related as almost any other thing that you might design and make by hand. There's so much crossover in terms of how you approach the project in terms of the types of hurdles that you're going to encounter, um, you know, uh, material choices and all of these things. And, and, uh, I mean, there's no way that I would be doing, I mean, frankly, there's no way I would be doing what I'm doing now if I hadn't done all of the other things that I'd been did before, even right. the ones that I considered to be failures are still, you know, they still put me where I am right now. So, I mean, they were just steps along the road. Right. But the, um, the interesting thing for you is, and not from, you know, if you're making a painting, you're, you can start from the top and go to the bottom. You can go to the bottom, go to the top. You can start mm -hmm. wherever you want to start. When you're making a knife, you got to make sure that you're, when you're drilling holes, you're drilling holes before you heat treat. Otherwise, right. you have to make, you know, and I would think that guitar making is the same where there's a specific order of operations in order in which to get to the next step where it's the same Definitely. thing with knife making. I mean, you can't yeah. do, you can't, I mean, you could, but I mean, it's like crazy to do one thing ahead of the other, which you don't normally do. No, there's, I mean, there are like a few things that you can kind of do more or less out of order because you're working on them independently. You know, like you could be, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you finish the handle, like if the handle and the blade aren't attached, it doesn't matter if you hand sand the blade or finish the handle first. They're, you know, you're working on them separately and then they'll eventually go together. And it's kind of the same with the guitar. Like you could be working on the back, you could be working on the front, you could be working on the neck, bending the sides, whatever it is that you're doing. And they're all sort of, you can choose to, to work on whichever one you want up to a certain point. But yeah, there's an order of operations that you can't fuck with too much. When was the um, last time you made a, uh, a guitar? Ugh, it's been too fucking long. I, I, I think, I think it was, let me just think back here. I think it was 2014. God, wow. that sounds like it was so it's long, a long ago. Time ago. Yeah, yeah. Because I started making knives 2016, um, and I was already not making guitars like full time by by 2014. So, but I, yeah, I made. I you know, I I was still dabbling, but um, yeah, it's one of those things. Like, I mean, for sure, I've forgotten a lot of it, but. I still have the tools, and I'm kind of hoping that one day one of my kids is going to be like, "Can we make a guitar?" And I'll, you know, I'll be able to kind of revisit that that part of my life. Oh, There's so man. many things that I would love to f spend my time doing that uh, I just can't. Knives of like well, knives what? and a family what would you, have just if, taken over. Let's man. just let's 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 go into that uh, fantasy world. Mm. What are some of the things? If you let's not talk about money, let's talk about family. What are some things you would like to do? Well, so I mean, as you know, music was a huge part of my life, and I wish that I could do more music for sure. Um, you know, I'm learning how to play piano this year. I'm, this, I, wow. I just bought a I bought a piano uh, January of last year, so I'm just I'm one year in to trying to teach myself how to play piano, and that's super rewarding. And it's nice because you can just jump onto it. You know, like if I have ten minutes, that's all right. I can just go sit down at it, play for ten minutes, and then 
then I got to stop, but at least I did something, you know, and then I'll have like a couple hours sometimes here and there that I can put into it. But, um, so music, yeah, music is always one of those things that I kind of wish I had more time for. I have all these like ideas for songs that are just these really rough, you know, demos or even not even completed songs, just little licks and noodles and things that I would be like, Oh, this could, you know, Oh, there's potential here. There's just no time for it. You know, um, Writing is the other one. Like I, I, you know, I have writing projects that I had to set aside that I'd love to get back to, um, and uh, I'm actually hopefully going to make some time for that later this month. I have one of my good friends is a he, he's a filmmaker, and we have we've we've always got at least one kind of project that we're working on together, and so he just kind of finished a, finished the first draft of a script that we did a treatment for together, and so we're going to sit down. I'm going to set aside like three, four days for that, but that's it. You know, like I get three, four days and then, you know, I might not be able to sit down to a project like that for like six months or something like that. So what kind of, if you don't mind me asking, what kind of screenplay is it? Oh, it's fucking hilarious. It's uh, it's like, it's a zombie. It's a zombie movie with a twist. So, Cause like, so when you're, when you're trying to write a screenplay, you, you could say, let's just write something that um, has no budget considerations and just like shoot for the stars or you can say well let's write a screenplay that has like a five million dollar budget and then you bake those constraints in right right um and if you're trying to write something that you have a hope in hell of producing at some point there are certain safe bets and and genre like especially horror is kind of one of the safer bets it's like there's a lot of low budget uh horror and zombie uh, you know, related content that gets produced. That do and well. It's not highbrow. They, they do pretty well considering how low they have a budget fan they base. are. Right? There's a fan yeah. base for that. Exactly. So, so there's a baked in fan base for that type of script. And so it was like by design that we, you know, decided to try to tackle a project like that. The project we'd been working on before that was like the complete opposite. It was a, based on a true life story of a Native American musician who gets, you know, shot by the cops and his legal battle and, um, you know, with all kinds of research and interviews and, you know, heavy shit like that. So this was like, let's do something completely different and just try to keep it light and have some fun. And um, so, yeah, so that's 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 one of the things I wish I could spend more time doing for sure. I, did you do a lot of writing in college? Well, I studied creative writing in university. I never graduated, but I did it. Yeah, I did. I, I you know, I, I used to write a lot of songs and poetry mostly but then i was studying playwriting um and you know with aspirations to be doing more film stuff and then i ended up just you know doing a lot of writing after that you know for myself basically writing shorts trying to sell short scripts that never worked but you know just trying different stuff that like you know i've always been somebody who kind of followed my my curiosity wow I tell you what, I'm very envious of the musical stuff. I've always been, my grandfather was a cellist in the New York Philharmonic. And mm. then my dad played the cello for a little bit. And then to try to, you know, get the love of my father, I picked up the cello. I fucking sucked at it. And I hated oh, it. Cool. And I didn't feel as though, I didn't feel as though, and I'm not a good singer. My wife drags me to karaoke and, and it's like, I'm just, I'm humiliated. And I sound terrible and I just don't have... I don't have the love and appreciation for music in order to say I wanted to be one of those guys. And I never even wanted to be like, I never dreamed of being, 
you know, we grew, you and I grew up in the time where MTV was MTV, whereas music videos. Sure. I never even had the aspiration of being like a musician, like, or like a rock guy. I didn't, I didn't, it never even dawned on me that I would, that I could possibly be, you know, like a music, like a rock and roll musician. But you were into acting though, weren't you, to a certain extent? For I mean, you did the, have some performance kind for of the tendencies dumbest, in you. For the dumbest reasons of all. And uh, the dumbest all the reasons, reasons of all is because my parents sent me to an all-boys school and the only opportunity we had to meet girls. And I'll tell you what, good or no, some, <laughs> some of these all-boys schools, actually. some of these goddamn all-boys schools, what they do is they'll do these, they'll do the part, the, fe- the, the younger kids have to be the female parts. So you go after years and years of you, you know, getting in there and all of a sudden you're like Maribel or something like that. And it's just like it's and then all your friends are breaking your balls back in the locker room. And it's just like it sucks. But then you have the opportunity to be with the all girls schools to do plays. And that's when I that is when and I'll tell you a funny story. I was like when I got the opportunity to be in school plays with the all girls school. That was like, all right, I have the acting bug. And it was completely just to be around girls. I get it. And (laughs) one of the craziest stories was, one of the craziest, but like I went to, my school was doing a play with this all-girls school. And the daughter of the all, one of the actresses from the all-girls school was Regis Philbin's daughter. You know who Regis Philbin is? Sure, yeah, sure. Regis Philbin, Regis and Kathy Lee, who wants to be a millionaire, is famous. So his daughter went to this all-girls school, and we were all went up to, and we were doing Bye Bye Birdie, which is this dopey thing. It's a, it's a fake. It's like it's a musical, like a, isn't it? The musical, you know, kind of like a fake Elvis Presley character. And I was the, I was Conrad Birdie, the Elvis character, just because I was a good-looking kid, and I look probably looked like Elvis, and I had to do a whole lot. So, they, they, I went, we went over to Regis Philbin and his wife Joy's house apartment, and she introduced me to Regis, huh? and. And here's the crazy part. So we're talking, and, he, and he, I think that he was nervous that I was, like, going to, like, start dating his daughter or something like that, and I was some sort of little Lothario. So I get a call two days later from my aunt in Ohio who was watching Regis and Kelly. Regis and – it was before Regis and Kelly. It was Regis and Kathy Lee. Regis and Kathy And Regis Lee, was telling the story. Regis was, Regis was telling the story of her daughter bringing this, this, these people over from the school – and this Conrad Birdie comes up, and she he's telling the story about me in his wow. fucking house. And he's basically saying this fucking guy, I, I, I'm just going to, like, I'm going to be respectful to him. He's a, God bless him. He's passed. But he was basically insinuating that I was trying to bang his daughter on the fucking show. <laughs> so he's telling Kathy Lee that, like, this Conrad Birdie's in there, and I got to, like, make sure they're not in the same room together, which is far the farthest from the truth. Wasn't gonna, I mean, I was very respectful to him, and I, his house was beautiful. There was just pictures of him and all these stars all over the place. And he goes on his fucking show, and he just starts talking about how I'm trying to bang his daughter. It was pretty... Uh, so that's well, first my... of all, as a father of a, you know, teenage daughter, like, you can understand maybe why his mind would have, like, oh, you know, leapt you know there or whatever, right? I got to tell you, as a person who needs as much content as possible, God bless him. I mean, it was a well, good that's story. It too. Yeah, he knows how to but, inflate, you know, oh, it into something I, entertaining. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't, I was, I didn't believe it until my aunt called me from Ohio. She goes, "You're never gonna believe it." They're, and and for me now, it's like 
all those kinds of stories, I'm bringing them here or the knife talk. I'm not going to, I'm not blowing that good, you know, a good bit of content. It's an awesome story. And it was, it was hilarious and true story. So, but in terms of acting, my, my sole reason was completely for, to meet girls. Completely. There was no, I didn't care about acting. I, I mean, I think that's kind of like the most common reason why any teenage boy does anything. So I think it's, per- I think it's perfectly legitimate. Well, it's not legitimate. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's like weasel time. And, and the funny thing is, is for two things. One is I almost was in Blue Lagoon 2 with Mila Jovovich, but I, but, and I didn't get it. And all I wanted to do was spend the summer in the Fiji Islands under a waterfall making out with Mila Jovovich oh, when she was yeah, very young. Sure. Like, even to this day, like, you know, all I can think of is, you know, that would have been awesome. And then the other thing is, is like when I went to college and I interviewed uh, Josh Radner from How I Met Your Mother uh, last year, when he and I got to college together, uh, he was like, he was really into acting. Like he was, he was a prof- I mean, he wasn't just this guy who got discovered and went on the show. He was a really devoted to acting. And when right. we both got to I think when we both uh, were trying out for a part, I was going in there saying, I'm going to wipe these motherfuckers up. Like, I'm coming in here, you know, I'm going to come here, I'm going to get all the girls, and I'm going to be the actor of, of, the, of the class. When I get to the first class, and Josh Radner and I are, like, auditioning for some shit, all of a sudden I'm just like, I don't have what it, I, this is not for, I, my, my intentions are wrong, and I don't even have to do acting to meet girls, I'm in a fucking co-ed college. Well, right, so the yeah. acting was over, completely over. Big fish, small pond, too, right? You know, like it, it, all of a sudden it was like I'm working too hard. I don't have to. I don't have to be an actor to meet girls. Are you kidding me? Right. I'm in all. I'm in a co-ed college, right. so it was like you know my the, the jig was up. It's too much work, but yeah. I don't feel that need. I don't feel that need anyway. Like I never really felt that need to be involved in those things. Anyways, I was. Uh, but at the same time, like what you did and what you do, this kind of it's it's the it's there's. Being able to make music out of the instruments that you buy, or that you make, making a guitar and being able to make music from that guitar must be the most satisfying thing in the world. Yeah, that was a cool feeling. And I, and I remember like I did some recordings of songs that I'd written. So it was like songs that I'd written on a recording that I was doing myself using an instrument that, I, you know, it's all a little masturbatory if we're being honest, but it was still satisfying it was still fun definitely but that's that's what art is is like it's not it isn't the thing in and of itself it's the it's you you as an as an artist feeling the need that people need to hear what you're saying and they maybe think they're right. you're cool i mean that's what being an artist actually is <sighs> it's i mean it's true right i mean if you're just going to tear it all yeah. down and be like totally totally honest, right i mean um, and I think that was probably for me, that was the thing that kind of put a, put, put the nail in the coffin for music for me was when I realized that like, I don't get that thing that people get when they get up in front of a crowd and it fuels them, you know, like I just, it's not in me. I, like huh. I would, it took so much effort to get out on stage and play my songs. And when it was over, I was just like, thank God that's over. And I did it for years not realizing that everyone else who was doing this, or at least, you know, for the most part, they were doing it because every time they got up on stage, it was like, fucking right, feed me, give me yeah. this, ad, you know, adulation, it, it, you know, it like stokes me or whatever. And so, yeah, I think, you know, you have to also kind of consider the reasons why you do things. And for me, certainly it was, it was not about the performance. It was about, 
it was about writing and it was about creating with other musicians and recording and that whole process. And if people liked it, great. But, you know, the, the performance aspect of it, eh, I mean, you probably had, you know, I mean, we all have that itch that we want to scratch to a certain extent. I mean, you, you, you're doing podcasts that scratches a certain itch for you, right? It gets you to there's a there's a performance aspect to it. But I it's have not your you, main gig, right? You know, you I didn't go into acting or radio. I have what you have, which is thank God it's over. When I was yeah. in plays, I remember we would have plays and I would be a nervous wreck. I would like it the first week of rehearsals because you're meeting new girls and you're feeling relaxed and you're trying to learn your lines. And then closer to the day of the play, I would be like nauseous. Right. And then you have three, you have three shows and then there's two on one day and then, and you're just trying to get through. And, and it was like, it, every time it was over, we would, you know, bow to the audience and I would be fucking grateful it was over. And then oh, yes. God, we have to do it yes. again. Yeah. And we got to do it again. And I, exactly like you, I, I was grateful when it's over. And that's the best reason why you don't want to do something. That's You're it. grateful and it's over. That's it. Yeah, then it's not for you, you know. I, the same thing was when I was, when I did that Epicurious video. When I did that Epicurious video on YouTube, where it was like the closest thing I've ever been to being on TV for, right. a, for a sustained period of time. Like I've been interviewed on things and we've done a little, little this and that, five minutes here. Five. This was a seven-hour shoot. And I wrote the thing, and we did the whole thing, and I organized it all. I was so I at half an hour before it was over, I turned to Tony, who was off stage. I said, "You got to get me out of here. I, I I can't do this anymore." And it was like I was so grateful that it was over. I didn't relish in any of it. I felt like every guy I'm looking at, holding a camera, holding a light, holding a sound boom, holding a you know, there was 15 people there. All I could think of is I'm like I see like these invisible these like dollar signs again you're in a cab and the meter's running yeah. like i couldn't yeah. Yeah. i couldn't get out of the, that i have to do my job because otherwise i'm wasting somebody's money like i could i couldn't enjoy it at all i hated it hey too aware of the pressures surrounding it right you could not you and and that's part of that's part of all these things i mean i would think that like you know a, a, like a professional musician has to be devoid of being completely comfortable so they can really enjoy the experience otherwise it's just like you and me which is like thank god it's over oh my god yeah yeah and then the, and, and the other aspect to that which becomes kind of grueling is uh you're you're putting a piece of yourself out right i mean it, you know if it's a song and most of my songs were basically autobiographical you're you're reliving you're reliving an experience if and if you're doing it right if you're going to be a good performer you better get into your fucking song you better actually right. feeling that way as you sing it and if it's a painful thing or if it's even just a kind of goofy thing that you just don't relate to anymore it's hard to just kind of get into it and it becomes kind of grueling and it's like fuck i'm not even that guy anymore i don't even want to play these fucking songs i'm sick of the song and i'm sick of feeling the way that i feel when i sing it and i mean Look at so many musicians who, I mean, fuck, I mean, you're a fan of the Rolling Stones. I love the Rolling Stones too, but I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they go out there and play this fucking songs. They're, oh. They just don't want to let it go. Something it, They're clearly getting something fantastic out of that experience. Right? Well, look I at mean, these athletes. 
athlete, professional athletes who obviously you get to a certain age, t Tom Brady's is about to be 45 and he wants mm -hmm. to do another year, you know, and everyone's talking about all these football teams. I don't know anything about football, but I mean, you know, some of these guys, they know that they're, the clock is against them, right? But you oh, got yeah. guys like the Rolling Stones. Here's, here's a good example. is uh, I, uh, On HBO Max, Howard Stern interviewed uh, Bruce Springsteen. Bruce okay. Springsteen looks great, by the way. It's shocking that he's like in his 70s. And oh, yeah? he talks about the fact, and I was thinking about his guitar and I was thinking about you too, because like his guitar, you know, when you talk about guitars looking a certain way and it's specifically, I mean, his, his guitar looks beat the fuck up. I mean, really, right. I mean, it really is like, totally beat up. But what he's talking about, he's talking about, he's like, yeah, we you know we do, if we do uh, an hour and a half or do two hours, the and the and the crowd is expecting to be three hours and i got to do four hours the next time and it's like he has right. this like intense pressure to make his fan base happy who are insatiable you know and it's like right. it's it seems it seems exhausting i think it i think it is unless the the applause is fuel for you and in which case i think it's the opposite but i think you and i just don't respond that way to it and so it's almost you know impossible to to imagine it being energizing right um but I, I, it must be for some people well podcasting for me scratches an itch i've always had which is always was the idea and actually i got some really nice messages lately uh about both the podcasts that you know i always knew that the, for me it was about in a crazy uh, to say another crazy thing but um podcasting you know radio and podcasting when i was alone my my childhood in a lot of my making career you know making life and you kind of want to feel like you're some people listen to music i kind of wanted to feel like i was not alone and right. radio talk radio and stuff like that kind of made me feel safe and comfortable and i always felt like for knife talk and for this i'm also doing i'm trying to do that as well and i've gotten a lot of messages recently from listeners who are just like you know you've kind of uh, kept me company through some dark times and, and it really does make, it does scratch an itch, but also the other itch is, is like, I don't, in my mind, I don't think of people listening. Like if I'll, if I'll make a mistake or I'll I know that I have some verbal crutches that I say and stuff like that. I don't really worry too much about that. I try to make you comfortable, try to make me comfortable. We have a good conversation and then that's good enough for me. Sometimes I don't really, I'm not, sometimes I've been not into it. Sometimes I'm into it, but at the same time, I, it's performative to a certain degree. Yeah, there's a safety to it. I mean, in the sense that you're in your car, you're not in front of an audience, in front of an audience. And yeah, I mean, so there's like that extra level of protection, right? Um, which maybe makes it like a little bit more accessible. I um, wouldn't want to do it in front of an audience. No, because and, no. It, and it also it wouldn't sound the same. And I think that maybe that's the same way why you liked recording, because yeah, it is this idea of you're being you're there's a freedom about it. And and you when you listen to other podcasts, they know you can hear when people are talking, they know that they're talking. You can tell that they're nervously talking to the audience. Like you can tell, yeah. like you can tell, yeah. like they'll use like cliches and they'll use like little extra filler words and then they're stuttering and you're nervous and stuff like that. But when you're doing this and you're comfortable and it's, it's I would imagine the same thing with your recording, there's this ability to not really think about, you know, the initial reaction to a live audience. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, when when I'm when you know whenever I was recording music, I was always thinking about there must be at some point when this is over, someone who will listen to it, right? And I'm hoping they're going to dig it. But I'm making it for me. I'm doing it for right. me, ultimately. It's fascinating because yeah. you know I actually I have be, I've become friendly with a couple. Ah, well, what I was going to say before was uh, there's a a pretty. In the radio business, there's this guy by the name of Ron Bennington, and he had a show. He had a radio show called Ron and Fez for quite a long time, and then he's on Sirius XM, and he's he uh, I, he's always been one of these radio guys. Awesome interviewer, great radio personality, terrific broadcaster, just one of the guys I've idolized for such a long time. Well, it turns out he lives like like very close to the shop, which is huh. crazy. Like really, she, he lives, like I, I see, I bumped into him and I talked to him and I've been very, you know, I'm also, you know, New Yorkers, you don't get crazy. You just, you know, you let people live their lives and stuff like that, famous people and stuff. And, he, and he's famous in a small, very small, you know, radio listeners would know who he is. And it turns out that he's like, he lives not too far from the show, this, where I am right now, which is totally mind blowing. And I used to listen to him for years and years and years. And now all of a sudden he's kind of here, you know, right. he's supposed to come to the shop at some point, which is going to blow my fucking mind. Cool. But, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I was taught, I was actually thinking about like stand up comedians and how stand up comedy is so audience important. It's everything. It's yeah. every, which is totally crazy. I mean, totally crazy because like, I mean, that's the part that you have to have, you have to like ignite the audience in order to be good. Yeah. Yeah. One of my closest friends is a stand up uh, comic and has been for, fuck, I don't know, going on almost 15 years now. And, you know, most stand up comics, even the ones who make a living, you, they're not household names. You know, these right. are just guys who are on the road going to clubs. You know, trying to get gigs, trying to pay for you know their fucking rent. Basically, it's not it's not a very lucrative. No, unless you glamorous. get a TV show or unless you get like an HBO special or you know, but that's just like the top one percent or whatever who get that. But but I've always admired just how big your balls have to be to get on that stage, man. I mean, to 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 stand up in front of people. I mean, I I've done solo shows like where I'm playing you know my songs. Musical audiences are so forgiving. You, you you could tell like the lamest little joke in between songs and they'll they'll bust a gut laughing. You yeah. go up to you know stand up comedy, they're ready to fucking assassinate you unless you assassinate unless you. you make you know unless you somehow win them over in the first two seconds of getting on stage, right? So it's so brutal. And uh, I've watched him bomb and I've watched him you know kill, and um, it's not really that big of a difference between those two sets. It's really has to do with just how did the audience respond to it? So you're so dependent on that crowd who came before you, right? The guy who you're following can have as big of an impact on the success of your set as, as your own preparation. It's, it's, it's totally different from how you and I were talking about. I'm glad it's over. Like those guys can't be glad it's over. It's like you are so everything matters in regards to how you do, how that audience perceives you. And it's like yeah. you don't really do like even albums, even like comedy albums. Like I grew up, I had Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and all these guys. You, if you don't have the audience in the background laughing, you just kind of. I mean, maybe you'll laugh, but I mean, it's kind of hard. Yeah, there has to be that level of like infectiousness for sure. Speaking of bombing, I uh, a friend of mine after right after college, uh, my friend Kip. 
was a stand-up comedian, went to college. And uh, the, the week that Princess Diana died, the week of Princess that Princess Diana died, mm. we got invited to an open house, open sh- open open house, open, oh, no, open open mic, open mic. And he was going to be there, and he brought a pile of his friends, and we all came to see Kip. And this other guy came on, and this other guy just wasn't. I mean, everyone was there to see Kip, and this guy wasn't really. He wasn't getting anything out of us, so he went from telling his jokes to insulting us. You guys all must be here for Kip. Oh, you know, fuck you all. And then people, and as soon as he started that, people started to boo him. Yeah. And then he started saying, and this is the week, this is not not even a week after Princess Diana died. He started telling Princess Diana jokes. Like, and he, it was, this was like, you know, you hear the people say, is it too, you know, too soon and stuff like that. He was, and I had never been in a in a situation like this. I was like, he was just like he was talking about how mushed up her body probably was. And I mean, he was like, oh, Jesus, A-bombing. so he was like desperate, right? He was floundering. He was like he flailing, was, grasping, and he yeah. decided that he was going to fucking become hateable, and right. it was crazy. I'd never seen anything like it, frankly. And like now, that's kind of a whole thing. But I mean, in terms of like. How would you if you go if you're a comedian and your whole thing is performing and like gaining the the adoration of this of the staff or whatever or the, no the people in the how do you go off stage and think I'm glad it's over when everyone's fucking booing you? Oh God! Can you imagine? Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, I'm, I I used to watch my my buddy when he was first starting. Every night it was like I got to find an open mic. I got to get up on stage. I got to try out this new joke. I got to do my five minutes. He was like living for that five minutes so everything was hinging on the success of that five minute set in this tiny little club with a whole bunch of people who could be shit-faced or who knows what and then afterwards your self-worth is affected in a way right because it's just so important to you that like if you bomb you got to be so resilient to be able to pick yourself up from that and just and be like well i'm gonna hit the open mic tomorrow night or even the one across town later tonight you know what i mean to just be that like hard but and just keep doing let's take it back to knife making let's take it back to knife making you must have in your experience had one dissatisfied customer what we can say whatever (sighs) level it is whatever level and when you get that dissatisfaction from a customer it is crippling for me devastating yeah it's 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 hard it's hard Uh, i mean we so i mean you you rely on the feedback from your customers to sort of let you know how you're doing right to a certain extent i mean you've got your own knowledge and you can you can get a fairly good sense of how good you're doing and how good your knives are but every time you get a comment that you know somebody goes like hey i've been using it for six months it's my favorite knife right like nice yeah got that one you know it feels good and I've never had anyone sort of like write me six months later and be like, you know, I've been using this knife for six months and it's a fucking piece of shit, you know, and I regret ever buying it. I haven't had that. And and so maybe I'm lucky. I don't know if other makers have had that type of feedback or something similar. Um, but I have had a customer who wanted to return a knife like as soon as he received it. And that was sort of like, oh, shit. I mean, what did I do wrong here? You know, it it definitely affects how you feel about things. Probably like we were talking about like the last time you, me, and Fingal were doing the the Knife Talk podcast, and I was talking about the feedback that I got um, 
on those knives that I sent to Abe and how, how it was just like tough to swallow. And it was like, okay, you know, you got to rise to this now. It was not a, an upset customer, not, not to the same degree, right. but, but you know, it was like, here are some, well, things he was encouraging better. Oh, hundred percent. And he was encouraging. No, he wasn't, it was, he was, he was investing no in your, him. in your, he was trying to help you get to the level that he wanted you to be at. That's, that's encouraging. 100%. That's not really a bad situation. It's critical feedback, but constructive. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not putting it in the same realm, but I'm just like, you asked me about experiences where I've had feedback that kind of like made me feel insecure, let's say, or, or, or whatever. That would have been probably the one that made me feel the most insecure just because I admire, you know, his, right. You know, the guy knows what he's talking about, you know? And so uh, the average guy who buys a knife from me may not, you know, see anything wrong with it. And, and, and hopefully he doesn't, but yeah, I don't know. And the other thing is, I feel like people don't write you and tell you when they're unhappy. Usually, no, they'll, they'll be more likely to just ghost you or you know just disappear. Well, they're there's like, a well, problem. Like I'm never buying a knife from him yeah, again. You never. I mean, it. I I totally. Uh, you know, I you know when you when I buy things and I receive them, I don't have to feel the need to send a message to the person I bought it from either. So like I'm just as guilty. But right. um, I think it's fascinating because. When you're making something, if you're a creative person, you're making something or you're a performative person, you are really not doing it for yourself as much as the feedback that you're getting. You know, yeah. if you're a comedian or you're a musician or what kind of, pardon me, feedback are you looking for? Now, I've had, I've had in the beginning, I had a guy who just didn't like the knife. It wasn't for him. And, and actually, and it was hard to take. He sent it back and he says, it's just not for me. And he wasn't an asshole about it because he wanted his, he also wanted his money back. Right. So like he, he, I, he was smart by not just like destroying me. You know, he could have been like this piece of shit. I want my money back. He was just like, you know, I appreciate what you did and all the work you did and the time and everything, but this is just knife isn't for me. And I was wondering if I get a refund and I was like, fine, I got it back and it devastated me. Yeah. But at the same, and, but at the same time, the times I've gotten really unhappy customers, I've really looked into why they're unhappy and I did address issues that made my knives better. With that said, right. it was crippling at the time. It was crippling. I had one guy who wrote me something. This is back really back in the day when I was in the shed. And he just wrote me these. He was just a dick. He was, wasn't nice at all. And I fixed the problems, and he was psyched after I fixed everything. But he was. It was. It was a really. It was. An, it was. A, it was a re interaction that I really wish hadn't happened, or could have been handled better. Right. But that reaction to the performative nature of me making something was devastating. I and can a lot definitely. Of comes, I can understand that. I mean, I totally can. I, can, I, you know, I think I would probably respond very similarly, especially at the beginning, right? When you you said this was like fairly early right. after, you, yeah. When it still isn't. I mean, you're not. You're sure. You weren't. You weren't. You weren't fader knives yet. You know what right. I mean? Like you didn't have an established, credible reputation. You were still just a guy trying to make sure you were, you know, trying to figure out if you were good enough or whatever, right? And that's yeah, that's when you need to be lifted, not, you know. Well, a lot encouraged. of it, a lot of that also comes from, and I make jokes about whether or not knife making is art or not, and like a lot of it comes from just me being, a, you know, just being obnoxious and stuff like that. But I do remember when I was a sculptor, 
the idea of when you're making art, you're making sculpture, is you are really making a physical manifestation of the person that you are or what you're trying to get across. And it is a, you are in a very vulnerable place because you're yep. trying to be as honest as possible. And you're trying to be as, you're vulnerable. You're in a vulnerable spot. So when you put something out there and you're very, and you're being open and you're being honest and you're, you're not throwing her, you know, you know, in your heart that you're giving it your all and someone's just very, you know, blase about it or flippant or aggressive or obnoxious. That's where that comes from because you're putting out your whole, you're putting everything out there and then it's just not, you're just not getting back what you're hoping for. You're actually getting emotionally damaged. <laughs> yeah, it's to a certain extent. But I think a lot of people who are in the arts, they develop a tough skin pretty quick because if you if you want to be performing at a very high level, you have to be able to take some heat, you know, some criticism. You got if you want to, if you want to raise your standards, you got to be willing to look at the things that you're doing that aren't quite good enough. I mean, there's just no other way to do it, right? I don't know. I'm not necessarily so sure anymore. No? Because if you're trying to do your own thing and you're trying to be confident in your thing, you might not necessarily need the advice of somebody who wants you to do something different than what you want to do. You know, I think that and that becomes something like when I was younger, I was confident of the things that I was doing. And then I was told that I'm not doing it right. and I'm wrong. And I don't know what I'm talking about. This came from my father. So as I grew older, I realized, wait a second, I was super I was super uh, I wasn't comfortable with the decisions that I was making because I was told I was wrong. I wasn't um, confident. I wasn't confident. at all. I was very, very I was super not confident. And right. I, the older I got, I realized, wait, I was right the whole time. Like I was right and he was wrong. And it gave me this feeling of, you know what? I'm just going to have more faith in myself as opposed to something that somebody says that I'm not necessarily sure I agree with. Now you got, obviously you have to be a little bit, uh, you have to be a little bit, uh, un, uh, you gotta be independent about it. You gotta be a little bit, you know, self, you know, self, uh, analyzing about it. But at the same time, yes. I feel like, I feel like in order to be kind of an artist, I think you got to stick to your guns. Yeah, I I definitely see what you're saying, and I and I I think that having that voice or having that direction um, is absolutely crucial. But at the same time, there's craft and expression, and they're two sort of different things, right? And the craft allows you to 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 express the message that you're feeling i mean you might have a fucking the most beautiful painting in your mind but if you don't know how to use a brush like you're never gonna like, right. no one else is gonna see it and someone has to teach you how to use a brush and there's a right way and a wrong way to use a brush or, or I'm, I'm guessing i don't know how to fucking paint but yeah, you know what i mean you're saying the right thing so you, don't pretend so, like you paint i want to tell what you paint i know you paint <laughs> you sound like you paint because that sounded right to me <laughs> yeah no not at all i don't know how to paint but i do know how to i do know how to make knives and you know and like and I learned how to do that because I had other people, you know, other people online helping me out and watching videos. And so like when you're, you have to be, you have to be willing to take criticisms and criticism from other people. And and I get your point when you were saying like, don't let anyone tell, tell, you know, don't let anyone else tell you what you should do sort of big picture wise. Right. But, but in terms of like the small picture or, or in terms of like the minutia. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're fucking up your heat treat, and you don't know what the hell's right. going wrong. 
It's, it's um, not subjective. Don't just say, well, I'm just going to keep doing it this way. Right. You know, you got to call somebody Some things aren't subjective. what the hell they're doing, right? Yeah. Right. Some things aren't subjective, which brings yeah. me to the point that I wanted to talk about uh, uh, when Fingal was here. Tell me about what you're doing now with your, you're starting to teach, but like doing private lessons online. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of new idea. I mean, yeah, so I, knife coaching, I guess you could call yes. it, whatever. Um, basically, I, I've had people who have wanted to come out and do a workshop, but you know, I'm in rural southern Canada, and a lot of people just can't make it all the way out here. Um, and so, at one point, a couple of years ago, somebody pitched to me like, "Hey, could, could I just pay you for your time? You know, like we'll do a Skype call. Tell me how much it would cost to do an hour." And so. That was the sort of the beginning of that idea for me. I'd never considered doing that before. And I, so I tried it out and I realized this is actually great. I really like this because it's kind of like what we're doing right now. We're just talking. We're just talking about stuff basically that I already know about. So how hard is that? You know, there's no editing a video, um, you know, trying to make sure you got, you know, decent mics for sound and blah, blah, blah and all this shit. There's no production value. It's literally just tell me what you need and I'll just give it to you right here, you know, Um and so we, I started doing it a bit for that guy, and then that kind of turned into a couple other guys. And then I was like, I should just do more of this because I, I like it. And what the hell? I don't think there's anyone else doing that in the knife world. Of course, it's a model that exists in you know probably almost every other industry, right? I mean, it's essentially con online consultants or whatever. But um, yeah, so I, so I've you know I put it up on the website. It's 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 there. It's I haven't really been promoting it to the extent that I you know, need to and, and will in the future, but it's going to take some time to, to grow it. It may, it may grow. It may not. It's a new model, right. In a way for, for the knife community, we're used to learning from videos or directly face to face. So it's a new model and I'm trying it out. Well, I tell you what, it's so, I was, I was really thinking about it a lot after I saw, I, I know that you did a video on your Instagram about it and it makes so much sense because, you know, you can get, you know, a video like uh, Jason Knight's online videos are awesome. Like really yeah. awesome. I bought them both. They're really great. But if you have something specific that you have a question for, wouldn't it be nice to just kind of get those, you know, you can cater your time with you to what the person actually needs. Exactly. Which is like, exactly. which is like way more productive for your customer than having to wade through five basic classes before you get the answer that you want. Right. Or, or you know, going on YouTube and Googling, you know, heat right. treat for this or, you know, grind how to grind a chef knife. And you'll see videos and it may answer your specific question or it may not. And you might waste hours just trying to track down this one answer. And I mean, I'm... I'm not the most comfortable guy just cold calling people. I have other, you know, friends in knife, the knife community who are just like, wow, just call him up. I'm like, nah, right. I don't want to yeah, know, bend his ear. And, you know, he's, I would, there's so many knife makers who I admire who I'd love to just, you know, send him a DM and be like, hey, uh, David Lish, can you tell me how you, you know, do your penny guards? Right. I just don't feel confident doing that. And frankly, I don't think it's respectful to try to take someone else's time, um, you know, I mean, if it's like a quick question or whatever, fine. But, right. you know, I know David Lish has probably got, you know, 50 guys that are sending him DMs on a regular. And he's probably very gracious with all of them. But I just don't want to be one of those guys. I don't know. It makes so it, that was, it's yeah. so smart. 
it's so smart because like not to mention you're extraordinarily artic- I think you're the most articulate guy in knife making frankly and I think oh. that like if you were to ever to do a television show or like a real radio show like I would believe you would be you would be on the short list because you're just very eloquent and I would think that that eloquentness eloquentness there you go that's eloquent eloquentness <laughs> your eloquentness your eloquentness is 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 would also makes it more valuable because you're not stammering and stuttering and you can explain to the person on the phone what they're trying to get out of you well that's what i mean that's what i would hope and i mean we all have to try to like be honest with ourselves about you know what what our strengths and our weaknesses are and and i think communicating is one of my strengths and it was what got me into writing in the first place and all of these things and music and so and that and there's really not much room for it in knife making i mean other than like communicating with my clients which is of course you know important it's a big deal and i think i i'd like to think i do that well but um yeah i i think that it's it's a way to take this sort of I guess, ability that I have or comfort level with communicating that I have and just apply it to something that I'm super passionate about. I love talking about knives, you know, like I don't have anyone else to talk. I know you're on the, you know, you get to talk knives once a week um, on the podcast, but you know, I'm alone in my shop 90% of the time and there's nobody to like get excited and geeky about this stuff with. And so listen, you have an open invitation here, Noah. You oh. anytime I told you this before because you a couple of years ago or last year you said you were thinking about doing a podcast and I said I, and it I was, was to stop you I was trying to stop you I didn't want to have to compete against you because then you'll whip my ass <laughs> you have an open invitation you have an open invitation anytime you say yeah I'd love to podcast you could call me up you call me up you got an open invitation well that's no awesome problem. man I I appreciate it. I have like I have to come up with the right idea. And it'll be a one-off. Don't worry about. It. I'm never. Wait, I'm never anytime. getting into this game full time. You don't have to worry. I about will. Me. You have. You basically have. You have an open invitation. Anytime you want. If you had an idea that you want to do, or you just want to fuck around, you come on a full blast. No problem. And with that said, I want to make big giant thank you to B Cone Knives and the guys that work for a podcast. We had accidentally double booked. He and I, Brian and I, double booked Noah. And it was, was no one's bad. fault. It wasn't no, anyone's it was my, fault. It was my fault. It, was it my wasn't fault. anyone's fault. And I appreciate. And I didn't. I didn't beat the shit out of Brian. Brian's the guy. Beacon's got my guy. We, and he was graceful enough to gracious enough to say, oh, "I'll get Noah some other time." And he was busy and stuff like that. And just to let you know, I did not hardball him. I was not an asshole to him. And I did do something that is very elusive. I gave him a, uh, a uh, uh, he, I owe him one, which I am very loath to do. So anytime he needs anything from me within reason, if he needs a guest, needs a guest host, he needs anything he needs from me, B-Cone's got me. I am with B-Cone. Listen to the Work For podcast. Go follow Noah Vashon, Vashon Knives on Instagram. Go call him up. He's going to bill me for this episode. That's fine. I'll tell you. No problem. No problem. I'll, I'll be, send, me, send me a bill. I'll give it to Tony. You'll know, pay it. Go, go get the knife coach. The knife coach. Noah Vashon is the knife coach. Go have all your questions answered by a guy who clearly knows what he's talking about. Noah Vashon. Thank my you. man. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's always fun, man. It's it's uh, it's a real pleasure. 
Thank you. Well, the pleasure's mine, and like I said, open invitation. Anytime you want to shoot the shit, you have an open invitation. No question asked. All right, guys, listen to me. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go thank B. Cohn and the Work For Podcast guys for being so flexible with me. They are my friends. I am with them. And thank you, Noah Vashon, for just being you. And it was a lot of fun as always. I'm glad you're here. You're always welcome back. And thanks you to our sponsors. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks again, Noah. Amazing. Thank you. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.